I want to begin this morning by um, telling you about uh, an article that appears in the June 2003 issue of Touchstone Magazine. Uh, the article is entitled, The Truth About Men and the Church. The article really points out the, uh, the correlation between a, a father's spirituality and children's spirituality in, in some regard. Robbie Lowe, the writer of the article, he quotes another study done by uh, Switzerland, by some scholars in Switzerland, re- regarding the correlation between the church attendance of parents and the church attendance of children. And sifting through the data, it really makes a profound statement about the impact a father will have upon his children, especially as it relates to God. There's lots of statistics. I want to boil it down to four most important ones. All right, Listen, listen closely. This might startle you a bit. First, according to this study, if, if a father and mother are regular in their church attendance the percentage or the number of children that will attend church when they become adults is 33%. So a third. Now, I, th- I think that seems low in some regard for evangelical churches, but know that this is in Switzerland where um, it's a country of declining spiritual interests and across all denominations. And, and the significance of this 33% isn't so much to say that a third of these children here won't attend church when they're older. That's not the significance. The significance of it relates to the other percentages. Let me me show you another one. So father and mother, regular in church attendance, 33% of their children. Now, if a mother is regular in her church attendance and a father is irregular, the percentage of number of children who attend church in the future is 3%. If a mother's regular and a father's irregular, it's 3%. Now switch that around. Suppose a father is regular, but the mother is irregular in church attendance. The percentage of, of children who will attend church in the future, 38%. It goes up. And, and in fact, if a, if a father attends church regularly and a mother is um, like not practicing her faith, whatever that means... So, like not interested, in, never comes to church at all, the percentage of children who will attend church in their adulthood goes up to 44%. You know what that means? It means the ladies, maybe you ought to get out of here and then maybe there will be a higher percentage for children to come. Now, here's what it means, alright? It means that when it comes to spiritual life of a child... It's the father's spirituality which is the greatest determining factor in the life of a child. And so, you know, you can argue from these statistics. Um, you know, wives, be cold and lifeless in your faith and watch your husband come. But, but here's really the question. Husbands, fathers, if your wife was cold and lifeless, would you still be here today? I think that 33% shows that there's a lots, of, lots of fathers who aren't engaged in their faith. And that's really the, the question for you. Is Christ so precious to you that barring all hindrances, worship is your priority? Here's what I think is going on in those, in those statistics. Okay? This is my interpretation of what's going on. Uh, I think what it says, in life of American average church-going family, 
When mom and dad both attend church, children see church for what it is. It's a place where sinners gather to worship the Lord. Some children are attracted to the gospel, remain in church through factors. Others see the hypocrisy of their parents and have abandoned the whole thing. They just, well, they go to this thing, but it's nothing. But when a, a father shows little interest and mom goes to church, I think the kids can interpret that as, well, that's just where mom gets her, her social needs met. Aren't, aren't women more social creatures? And so the church is where that happens and I just that's not for me. But when a dad who's primarily not a social creature will overstep mom to go to church, I think the kids say, wow, something's bigger going on here. It's not just for social relationships here. It is, there's a greater reality. He goes there because it's true. He's embraced this truth and so the children are more often to come. And so I, I say that with this introduction. Fathers, do you see the importance of your spirituality in the life of your children? I have a burden my heart, this Father's Day to address you fathers, calling you all to be spiritual men. If for no other reason than for the sake of your children. After all, they're the reason you're called fathers in the first place, right? I have a heart for your children. And so as you progress and show vibrant spirituality, the opportunities for your kids to follow will be greater. My message this morning is a topical message entitled Spiritual Fathers. I'll pull some things from Second Timothy. You can open them there if you want. It's not going to be an exposition today. I'm just going to pull some thoughts here. But before we dig into Second Timothy, I know there's some of you wives here who have husbands who are spiritually AWOL. Okay? I just look around here and I know that they're here. And I think of, of anything that these statistics have done has pressed more pain upon your lives. And um, that's not the intent. And know that. I feel your pain. I'm aware of your pain. Being sensitive to this, I want to preach to the, the wives who are in this situation. Okay? Some are obvious and some are less so obvious. There could be... You know, some have husbands who aren't here, and that's pretty obvious. But some have husbands who are here who, quite frankly, might as well not be here. And so sensitive to this, I want to speak to the mothers first. I want to encourage you all by the scope of the statistics. This, this study done in Switzerland is only external. It's only measuring church attendance. I mean, that's just, it's measurable. You can measure how many people attend church. True, genuine spirituality is more difficult to, um, to measure. Also, these statistics are purely demographic. You know, it's just a, just a broad range over all denominations. I'm certain that it's different in evangelical, Bible-believing uh, homes where mom is passionate for that. And so I would suspect there's a much greater hope for children who are actively led by their mothers in the ways of the Lord who are solid believers. I, I do believe that. But there are other examples also that might encourage you. Second Timothy, perhaps you're open there. Look at chapter 1. I want to encourage you by the example of Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul's writing to Timothy, this young pastor. He says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. As I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. Here you see Paul's heart and love for this young man constantly remembering Paul, Timothy, night and day in his prayers. Every waking moment that went by, Paul was thinking about Timothy and his, his ministry in Ephesus. 
He said, I was longing to see you in verse 4. And throughout the epistle, there are clues about how, how passionate Paul was in his love and his care for Timothy and, and how close and dear he was as he was faithful to the Gospel of Christ. But of most importance to us this morning is verse 5. Here's, here's this one who Paul loved greatly. He says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwell in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Paul mentions the faith of Timothy, and he does so in a way that ought to encourage mothers who have AWOL fathers. Because if you look here, he mentions Timothy's mother, whose name is Lois, I'm sorry, Eunice, and mentions Timothy's grandmother, whose name is Lois, mentions both of them as fellow believers in Christ, but where's Timothy's father? He's not mentioned here. Why? Because he was an unbeliever. If you read in Acts chapter 16, verse 1, Timothy is described like this. He was a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And you can take that to say he was an unbeliever. Timothy was not raised by his father in the things of, of the Lord. When Paul took him to go on ministry, he had him circumcised because he wasn't circumcised because his father wasn't following the ways of the Torah because he was a Greek. And everyone knew he was a Greek. But Timothy's mother had a profound impact upon his life. Timothy grew up in a home with a godly mother and a spiritually absent father. And God used his mother and probably his grandmother, as she is mentioned here also in verse 5, to be crucial and instrumental in his life to lead him to Christ. I say this because of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Look over there. 2 Timothy 3. 14 and 15. You, Timothy, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And from childhood, you have learned the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy learned the Scriptures, as verse 15 says, from childhood. And who's teaching Timothy in his childhood? Not his father, but his mother. And her teaching stuck. Despite the pull of Timothy's wayward father, Timothy became a great hero of the faith who stood strong for the Gospel together with Paul. Paul says in Philippians 2.2 that, that Timothy served together with me in the furtherance of the Gospel like a child serving his father. Just being faithful there. And so mothers, with fathers who are spiritually absent, I encourage you to take heart. God can use your influence in your children's lives to lead them to Christ apart from the bad influence of the Father. Other names of church history come to mind. I think about St. Augustine. Any of you know who St. Augustine's mother is? What's her name? Monica. Who said that? Vicky. Great. Monica. Um, she was a, a godly woman. Prayed for him constantly. She prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for mercy upon her son. And But... But Augustine had a father. Do you know his name? Good. I didn't think anyone would know his name. Because he's insignificant. He was an unbeliever. His name was uh, Patricius. He had nothing but a bad influence upon Augustine's life. Yet Monica, we know about her because of her godly influence. Eventually, Monica's prayers were answered. Augustine's testimony in his confessions was that his mother was always in deep travail for my eternal salvation. 
And he continued on. He says, I believed along with my mother and the whole household except my father. So be comforted by that too, is that, that mom is praying, dad is over here uh, outside of it, and even was antagonistic to things. And Cain even, uh, I read some stuff, couldn't totally substantiate it, but, um, but was not a good influence at all. But mom was, and the whole household except dad believed. But he did not overcome the influence of my mother's piety in me, nor did he prevent my believing in Christ, although he had not yet believed. So he saw his father as, as resisting him and, and saying, no, don't believe. Don't believe Augustine. Don't believe Augustine. And he got Monica here praying, believe, believe, believe. And eventually Augustine succumbed there and believed in Christ through the prayers of his mother. Another example from John Newton. He was a slave trader, came to Christ, wrote Amazing Grace, he grew up with his father on the sea, knowing the ways of the sea. His mother died when he was eight years old. And, and John Newton was out there. That's not the best life to be as a, with the sailors on the sea. It's depravity personified, right? And naturally, he lived in rebellion against the Lord, and yet John Newton was converted. And in great measure, it had to do with his mother who died. When he was eight. So you think about mothers. They have an ungodly husband. You die. Your child is eight years old. And Newton really gives praise to God for his mother in light of his conversion. It was March 21st, 1748. John Newton's in a storm on the ship. No hope of surviving alive. Everyone else on deck is below at the pumps. He was below at the pumps but became so fatigued he got a chance for a break and was up there at the, the rudder and so he had a time of silence and he was thinking in this big storm about the Scriptures that came to mind and they haunted him. The Scriptures he learned before he was eight years old. They led him to cry out to God for mercy. And here's his testimony concerning his mother. He says, For the encouragement of godly parents to go on in the good way of doing their part faithfully, I may properly propose myself as an example. Though in the process of time I send away all the advantages of those early impressions, yet they were for a great while a restraint upon me. Just all the things that Mama taught were a restraint. He had sent them away. He said, um, they returned again, and it was very long before I could wholly shake them off. But when the Lord at length opened my eyes, I found great benefit from the recollection of them. My dear mother, besides the pain she took with me, often commended me with many tears and prayers to God. So mothers of spiritually absent fathers, don't despair. Don't despair the statistics. Be encouraged with Timothy. Be encouraged with Augustine. Be encouraged with John Newton. And know that their untold millions have been prayed in the kingdom by their mothers. So pray. Let the tears flow. Plead the mercy of the Lord. But my message this morning is for fathers. It's not for mothers. It's a call for you fathers to be spiritual men. It's a call for you to be spiritual leaders in your home. It's a call for you to be authentic in your love for Christ that your children are drawn to believe because of your example. That's the call this morning. To, to so live and to so love Jesus that your children... Say, if that's what it means to be a Christian, count me in. I want to be there. By way of outline, I just have three points of application, all taken from 2 Timothy 2, but more topically rather than exegetically. First one, point number one, be strong in grace. 
First Timothy chapter two, verse one, we see Paul saying, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now Paul's counsel in the original context was to a pastor, how he was to relate to his church. But since the church is in many ways a large family, like look over in first Timothy chapter five. Bill Gusky, every time he stands up here, says, Greetings, family. We are a family. We're a family of families. 1 Timothy 5, verse 1. Do not sharply rebuke an older man. Why? But rather appeal to him as a father, because in some ways he is a family and he is a father to you. To the younger men as brothers. To the older women as mothers. And to the younger women as sisters in all purity. You just see the family relationships there. The church is a family. And since the church is a family, any counsel to the pastor of a church is good counsel for fathers within the church. Good counsel for all of you within your homes. Fathers, be strong in grace. This is what a pastor is supposed to be. This is what a father should be. As men, we are used to being strong. It's the way God made us. He made us strong. He gave us strong chests and arms, right? So you just look at me, right? He made us strong, right? We're stronger than our wives. Peter tells us that our wives are weaker vessels. Implies that we are weak vessels, but we are stronger vessels than our wives. And I don't think there's any man in this congregation who couldn't take his wife, subdue her if needed. And um, man, I've told you this before, if that's not the case, you better start hitting the weight room, okay? Because men, men, God, has, God has made us with, with chest and arms to be strong. And not only strong physically, but also often, though not always, a man has more emotional strength than women do. He's made men such a way they can endure the rough times of life. They can go out and make sales calls and be rejected and be rejected and be rebuked from their boss and work harder and face it out there in many ways stronger than women. Though there are exceptions on, on that for sure. But men were used to being strong. And the call here in 2 Timothy 2 1, though, is to be strong in grace. Grace is another word for kindness. It's for forgiving what people don't deserve. It's another word for love. It's another word for caring. It's another word for giving. And when it comes to your children, fathers, you need to be one who gives and gives and gives and gives and gives and gives and gives to your children, even when they don't deserve it. Beyond what they deserve. That's what it means. Be strong in grace. Be strong in kindness and love and giving to your children. On the one hand, it's easy. God has put within parents an undying love for our children. Even wayward children. I have witnessed this and I have been astonished by this, but I have seen parents who have been transgressed and, and hated by their children and uh, scorned and, and rejected, and yet parents still go after their children in love. Because God has placed somehow, some way in parents a love for our children. It's only with great pain, that, that, uh, with, with great depravity, that it comes where parents would turn to hate their children. But God has put us in that. So being strong in grace toward our, our children we love isn't such a difficult task. But on the other hand, there are times when it's incredibly difficult. When your child disobeys your clear command for the tenth time, hard. When your child fails and his or her responsibility to remember the house, it's hard. When your child accidentally breaks something that's precious and dear to you, gets in your stuff, 
difficult. When your child demands more that you can give, wanting more and more things, you don't have the money to give them the things, more and more time, you just don't have that time to give. When your child comes to look at you as a slave, with an attitude, oh, Mom, you're there for me. In some ways, that's true. It's difficult to be strong in grace in these times, but men, it's precisely in these moments you need to be strong in grace. I'm talking about coming to your children kindly and softly. I'm talking about giving your children what they don't deserve. Rather than yelling at them, I'm talking about hugging them. Rather than giving them an angry stare, I'm talking about giving them a kiss instead. Rather than shouting loudly in anger, I'm talking about speaking gently in love. That's grace. And if you men want to be spiritual fathers, you too need to be strong in grace. All your children know how big and strong and loud you can be. But the call here, 2 Timothy 1, is for a pastor to be be strong in grace and kindness. And, And for you fathers, it does. The call to you is to be strong in your gentleness and grace and mercy towards your children. Now for us, fathers, it's difficult. The world teaches us the opposite of this. In the business world, it's the aggressive fighter who has the success. And many times it's the angry man who gets results because he tyrannizes all of his subordinates. And and fearfully, they will stay at work, work longer, work harder because they're scared of the wrath of the boss. Such methods may work in the business world, but they don't work in the home. God builds godly homes through grace. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And God builds it through grace. And sadly... There are many children who know nothing but an angry father. It's just true. They know nothing but an angry father who demands what he himself is unwilling to do, who intimidates his children into servitude, who blows up when anything doesn't go his way, and the children walk on eggshells and can't wait to get out of the home. Because grace isn't there. It's anger and wrath. And I do believe the fruit of a father's anger will be a child's rebellion. That's just how it works. A father's angry, a child will rebel. I don't think it's an accident that the only two instructions in the New Testament given explicitly to fathers regarding the raising of their children addresses this very issue of anger. You really think, think about that. There are only two verses in the New Testament that explicitly command fathers what they are to do with their children. Ephesians 6.4 and Colossians 3.21 and both of them address the issues of fathers being angry. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Ephesians 6.4 Colossians 3.21 Fathers, do not exasperate your children so they will not lose heart. The demanding angry father will provoke a child to anger. The demanding angry father will exasperate a child. Because when your demands are never met and when you're hounding your children, telling them what to do, telling them what not to do, restricting their ways, never fully satisfied, your children will lose hope. That's how it works. The counter to that is grace. Fathers, may grace fill your homes because you're strong in grace. And kids will love to be in a home where grace abounds. And a key strategy for you all will be to make your home a place where your children want to be. And you can do that through grace. Well, my second point is how we can be strong in grace. It comes in verse 8. Paul writes to Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my Gospel. 
You say, Steve, of course I'm going to remember Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian, aren't I? How could I forget Jesus? Well, let me ask you, what about Timothy? What sort of man was he? Was he in danger of forgetting Jesus? Timothy was a pastor of a church. He'd been called by God to shepherd the church in Ephesus, fully engaged in the ministry. He knew the great Apostle Paul. He saw how central Christ was to Paul's message. He said in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And Paul was teaching Timothy, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Let's go out and preach the cross. Let's preach the resurrection. Let's preach the crucifixion. And, and he witnessed just how much Paul believed that, making sacrifices for for his faith. And he shared with Paul's heart in the church. And yet, Paul said to Timothy in his dying letter, <clears throat> he was soon to die after that. You can see that in chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 16. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. My departure has come. I'm dying. And Timothy, here's my last counsel to you. Remember Jesus Christ. Why did Paul say this? It's easy to forget. That's why I said it. It's easy to forget. This is the core of our faith, and the core of our faith is so easy to forget. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David. Descendant of David, that means that He came in the flesh of the line of Judah according to the promises of Messiah. He was raised from the dead. In order to be raised from the dead, you have to be dead first. He was crucified upon Calvary for our sins. Three days later, He raised from the dead. This space-time reality of Jesus Christ, Son of God, coming in the flesh, dying and raising from the dead, is the thing, fathers, that will strengthen you in grace. That's the thing that will strengthen you. Because you'll remember how you were saved in the first place. See, God doesn't save us when we're righteous. He saves us when we are sinners. He saves us by His grace. Look at Paul's testimony. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 and following. You just turn over there. It's just a few pages. Paul writes this, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. And yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Let me ask you, if you have such a perspective of your own salvation, how then will you deal with your children? Uh, How about this? We don't know if Paul had any children. We don't really know if Paul is married. Suppose he had a child. How would Paul deal with his child? Especially when they sinned. I can picture Paul sitting his little boy, Apollos, on his lap and saying, Apollos, you have sinned and the thing you've done is wrong, but know this, Apollos, that your daddy has sinned far more than you ever sinned right here. Before I came to Christ, I was a wicked man, Apollos. In fact, let me, let me tell you, I, I hated the name of Jesus. I blasphemed Him on many occasions. I hated those who followed Him. In fact, I used to chase down Christians and bind them and imprison them. I used to beat them with rods. I remember even rejoicing when I saw Christians being killed with stones. Like one, I can remember Stephen. 
He was being stoned. And I, I remember just standing there in approval of everything going on. That's worse than the sin you did, my boy. But at one point, when I was on the road to Damascus, I was going to beat Christians and imprison them who called on the name of Jesus. And Jesus appeared to me, the living One, the One raised from the dead. He saved me by His grace. And He spoke with me and called me into His service. And you, son, have sinned just like your daddy has. But know that your daddy has found forgiveness in Jesus. And I I still sin. Even though I'm a follower of Jesus, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. The good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I hate. And you need to know that about me, my son. And so I can sympathize with you too in your sin because I too am a sinner like you. But I would beg you to believe in Jesus and follow Him because God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. And He's the only way that sins can be taken away of. The sacrifice you see, them offering blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. But Jesus Christ, in Him... There is forgiveness of all of our transgressions, so believe in Him and find mercy on the cross like I have found, okay? That's how a father deals with a sinful son who is strong in grace and who remembers the Lord Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Because when you remember Jesus, it's going to help you in dealing with your sin. You're going to, you're going to remember that God saved me by grace and not by works. And you're going to have compassion upon your children. And yet, sadly, too often, and this is amazing if you think about it, parents deal with their children as if they never sinned themselves in the same way their children sinned. They see their children sin and they're provoked. I can't believe that you would do such a thing that was so mean of you. As if they would never do it themselves. Next time, your child sins. I want you to ask this question. When I was a child, did I ever sin like that? Or have I ever sinned like that? And would the truth be known? I think the answer would be yes. 99.99% of the time, when you see your children sin, you will be able to say, I've sinned that way long before you sinned that way. And remembering then Jesus and how you're justified by faith alone will help you direct and deal with your child. You can sympathize with your child as a fellow sinners. So fathers, don't forget Jesus Christ. Always have before you what He has done for you. He's done mercy and mercy and mercy and mercy has come to you. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a place for discipline. Because there is a place for discipline. Okay? But, but discipline isn't a place to vent your anger. Too often that is. A child sins and somehow it gets on your nerves and so is disciplined in your anger. Has shamed you in some way or has hurt you in some way and so you're just retaliating. That's not what discipline is. Discipline is to show your children how severe sin is. You want to teach your children that sin is dangerous and sin hurts. Stay away. Fathers, you want, if your children are climbing up way on a tree and way out on a limb and, and like might fall off, fathers, you ought to be going, come on, you can do it. You can get back. You're all right. And they're like, Dad, Dad, I'm scared. And you're like, you're okay. What, what's the worst going to happen? You're just going to break a bone. You're just going to go to the emergency room. We can fix that. 
or some other slightly dangerous activity, I think fathers, there's, you need to let your son, you know, you're, you're wrestling with them or they're, they're wrestling together or they're roughhousing. Let them roughhouse. Let them get hurt. Let them sprain their ankle. Be involved in football. Let them get hurt. But when it comes to sin, you stop them and you say, wow, dad will let me do all these dangerous things. It'll hurt me. But when it comes to sin, he's really serious about that. What kind of statement do you think that's going to make about sin? Huge statement. You let your children do what they weigh, but, w- but when it comes to sin, you stop them. And you stop them hard and you stop them fast. And so much so that you're willing to inflict pain upon your child to make a point that, that sin is dangerous and sin hurts. So stay away from that. That's the purpose of discipline. To give them wisdom that, that what they've done is foolish. And how they need to walk in the ways of, of God instead. And fathers also, never discipline your children in anger. That, 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 that's again, just you venting your own frustration. Discipline them in love. And to do this, remember the cross and you'll deal appropriately with your, sin, with your children. Know that you're a fellow sinner. Discipline your children as a fellow sinner yourself. I believe that one of the most devastating things for children is to see hypocrisy in their parents. Devastating. Too often, the very thing that drives children away from the Lord is when they see hypocrisy in their parents. They see a show on Sunday morning and they see a different reality throughout the week. They're singing praise to God, eyes shut, hands raised, fine, great, glorious God we have, wonderful! And they go home and they're yelling at the kids for everything that they're not doing and never admit their sin. At home, they see... Parents who demand perfection while they themselves are imperfect. And parents, you're not as good an actress as you think you are, right? Any bit of hypocrisy, your children will see right through you. They see hypocrisy, and oftentimes it's the hypocrisy of parents that drive the children away. They say, this is what church is about. It's about, son, it's, it's about just being happy, schmappy when you're out with people. But when you're home, when the doors are shut, you're like different. Fathers, be transparent. What you are on the outside, be at home. How about this? Do you know the only way to overcome hypocrisy? There is a way. There is a way. The only way to overcome hypocrisy is through humility and transparency. It's the only way you're going to do it. Because you're always going to speak higher than you can act. All right? You're always going to speak higher than you can live. I certainly preach a lot higher than I live. What's my solution for my kids? To confess my sins. To confess my failings. To confess my shortcomings. Let them see where I am. That protects me from hypocrisy. You want to have a spiritual impact upon your children, fathers? Confess your sins to your children. Tell them of your struggles. Tell them of your wayward ways. Because they see it. You might as well make it public. You try to hide it, you'll drive them away. But most importantly, here's my point. 2 Timothy 2.8 Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Share with them, yes, I've sinned, I'm sorry. But say, that's what I love about the Gospel, is I've failed, but, but in Jesus I'm right before God. And yes, I sinned against you, I'm sorry. 
but know that I'm, I'm trusting Jesus for my forgiveness and I hate my sin. And Would you forgive me? That will protect you from hypocrisy. And then your children cannot charge you with hypocrisy. It says, you say one thing and do another. Well, you did another, but you confessed, which made up the lack instantly, right? Because God makes us righteous through faith in Christ. And so why do you confess your sins to your children? Why will you, fathers? Because you want them to believe the Gospel. That's what you're aiming at. I mean, the Gospel isn't that we live correctly and do everything right. Rather, the good news is that we're sinners but we found grace in Jesus by confessing our sins and that's what we want them to believe, right? And remembering Jesus will help focus your attention upon your aim. You say, okay, what's, what's my aim? As a spiritual father, what's my aim? The aim is the new birth of your children. You're aiming for a new birth of them. You're not aiming for morality. Too often, fathers, aim for morality. Is all they want. They just want good kids. So that when I come to church, everyone looks good. We're all sitting in a row. We're all quiet. We're good. We're doing our praise thing. I just want kids to look good so I can look good. I want them to be good. But there's a big difference between moral children and godly children. And spiritual fathers know the difference and don't aim for moral children, but aim for godly children. They, they aim for children who have been transformed from the inside out and that flesh itself out works out in morality, to be sure, but works out from a heart that loves and desires God rather than an external facade of an apparent righteousness. Uh, look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. I think this is talking a little bit about those who might be moral but not godly. He says that they're holding to a form of godliness. That is an external, I think, charade, facade of godliness, although they have denied the power. I don't think they have the power for the godliness, but there is some type of, of display there. There's a difference between moral children and godly children. Nicodemus was a moral man. But Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. It's not your morality. It's being born again. All right, confessions. This book has been really the fuel behind my message this morning. Um, you, you know, you'll find a lot of these thoughts. You won't find sentences or anything like that. You, I don't even think you talked about Second Timothy, but the concepts are there. Gospel-powered parenting. Uh, I've read it out loud to Yvonne, and uh, we've been impacted by it. I, I just want to read a section here where he talks about um, William Farley. Don't know anything about him other than he's a pastor of... Um, Grace Christian Fellowship in Spokane. That's all I know, but this book has been excellent for me. He says this, The primary focus of Christian parenting is not morality. Well-behaved children are not the ultimate end. Saving faith, deeply rooted in the children's hearts, is the supreme goal of Christian parents. God saves the child who transfers all of his trust from his own works to Christ and expresses that faith through repentance. Therefore, Christian parenting is all about the transfer of dad and mom's faith. Morality is important, but it follows faith. It does not produce it. Transferring morality is the primary goal of secular parenting. You take Joe Blow, believer, unbeliever, and he'll want good, honest kids, mostly. Many of them won't, but... 
But for unbelievers, the goal of parenting is children that conform to society's expectations, such as admittance to Ivy League schools, success in business, or marriage to the right people. By contrast, the goal of Christian parenting is heart transformation. As we have noted, morality always follows that transformation, but it is secondary. This means that effective Christian parents aim at the children's hearts rather than their behavior. In Shepherding a Child's Heart, Ted Tripp notes, a change in behavior that does not proceed from the heart is not commendable. Yet, how many times are parents okay with that? Well, as long as they do what I say, that's okay. No, it's not. They need to do what you say with the right heart because a change in behavior that does not proceed from the heart is not commendable. Rather, it is condemnable. That's what Jesus condemned in the Pharisees. Change behavior, not from the heart. Mom asked Johnny to sit in the corner with a sullen look. He obeyed and said, I'm sitting down on the outside, but on the inside I'm still standing up. So address the heart. Don't let that, that, that is not acceptable. Address the heart. They say, oh, you look pretty angry still. No, I'm okay. <laughs> no, is, is something about you? Oh, I'm okay. The parent that just lets that go is aiming at morality rather than godliness. This is not heart transformation. It's moralism. It's the attitude of many teens from Christian homes. I'm a Christian because my parents are, but I'd really rather be at the party. It describes many adult Christians. I think this is where they learn it. I'm going to church because I was raised that way. I'm part of the 33%. But my real passion is golf, hunting, or pool, or something else, right? That's my passion. That's my heart. difference between morality and change from within. And I just say, if you remember Jesus Christ, you remember that the change comes from within. Paul wanted that. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Look at, look at the aim, the goal of all his teaching, all the instruction, all the preaching of the Gospel. He says, 1 Timothy 1, 5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. All those things are eternal. We want love, yes, but we want it to come from a pure heart. We want it to come from sincere faith. We want it to come from within. And too often, fathers, we can just aim for external obedience, missing the eternal, which is the key to it all. But remembering Jesus Christ will help keep our focus that it's new birth we're aiming for. It's changed from within. All right? Be strong in grace, fathers. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, lead your family. That is, lead your family spiritually. Right? 2 Timothy 2.2 2. Again, we're coming back to chapter 2. I'm just kind of pulling this out. Paul's writing to this pastor. He says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will able, who'll be able to teach others also. Timothy was to take the teaching of Paul and not merely hold it to himself. Rather, he was to share it. He was to pass it on. In particular, he was to have, have a search. The, the men in the church, he's going to find, okay, who's, who's faithful? Who is teachable? And who is, is able then to pass these things on? And these are strategic men who would take his teaching and share it with them that they might share it with others. Right, you've heard... Multiplication, discipleship. That's how the church ought to work. Pastors faithfully teaching men or teaching other faithful men. But if you think about it for any period of time, that's exactly how the family works. 
It's exactly how the family works. Psalm 145, verse 4. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. You have parents proclaiming the mighty acts to the next generation. And when the children grow up, they'll do the same with their children. They'll do the same with their children. They'll do the same with their children. Right? The things you have heard from me and trust a faithful man will be able to teach others. And so they teach others and they teach others. It goes on like that. In fact, Psalm 78 that Phil read for us this morning says this very thing. Think about it. God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which He commanded to our fathers that they should teach their children. The law wasn't given just to the fathers of Israel. The law was given to the fathers with the purpose that they turn around and teach their children. But, but catch this though, is that in their teaching, they're not aiming merely at their children. My aim, Krista and Hannah and SR who are here, my aim is not for you. That's what it says. Verse 6. That the generation to come, that's you guys, you three, might know even the children yet to be born. Your children, guys. That's what I'm teaching you and training you is for your children. Is it? Is that astonishing? I mean, Chris is 15. I don't want grandchildren yet, alright? There'll be a day when I want grandchildren, but not, not yet. Um, in my leading in the home, I'm aiming even beyond these guys to the children. But, you know what? It goes even beyond that. Look about this. Chapter, uh, Psalm 78, verse 6. That the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell their children... How many of you have been thinking about your great-grandchildren in recent days? That's your aim. Your aim is for your great-grandchildren. Because you teach your children, the children yet to come might know that they might teach their children. It's, it's a lofty aim. It is leading with a vision. And that is the whole Spirit behind 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And so I just want to pick that up and say this is family. And fathers, you don't need to search long and hard to find out who these faithful people are. Pastors look for faithful, available, and teachable men to lead them and to train them. But fathers, any of you can come up to me and you say, oh, I, you know what? I just, I, just, I just don't know who these, who these people are that I should train. All right? If you don't know that, you come to me and I'll help tell you this is the person and this is the person, okay? I'll take out a family photograph, okay? See these, you recognize these people? These are the ones that God has given you to train and lead. So fathers, lead your family. Now there are two ways you can lead your family. First is by precept. That is by word of your mouth, what you say. So lead your family by what you say. Teach them. I would recommend you read to them. That's like the easiest way to teach them. You say, you know what, Steve? I can't teach. I'm not very smart. I don't know very much. Well, pull a guy like William Farley who's written some things and just read to them what he's saying. Find books. It's easy to read to them. Over my years of being a father, I found that one of the most effective ways of teaching and leading my family is what I call family worship. It's really simple. It's evening time. Time to call our family together. Time of reading. Right? And um, we gather everybody together and we read from the Bible. We read from other books. We talk about the realities of Christian life. There are times we read a lot. Times we read a little. Times we sing and times we pray. 
It doesn't happen every evening, but we shoot for it every evening. Does it happen every evening, guys? No? Do we shoot for it every evening? I think we're, we're busy evenings oftentimes. People with the church, we're busy evenings, so it's, it's harder in the evenings. But whenever we can, that's when it happens. Now, here's what I've also found about being a father. Is uh, family worship never happens unless I initiate it. Uh, I don't think Sarah has ever said, all right, that's okay. Hey, are we going to have family worship? Are we going to do that tonight? Come on. Now, I think you're willing, guys. I don't think it, you're not, it's not that you're not willing, but it's just, it, it's just my job to initiate the whole thing. And it takes some work to initiate it. Because I, calling everybody together, five children, some of you have more, it's hard work. It means pulling them away from what they're doing. You know, SR is working on his computer, and Chris is working on her homework, and Hannah's playing with her bird, and Chris is playing with her dolls, and SR and David's playing with his trucks. You gotta, you gotta tactfully and very carefully say, okay, guys, in, in ten minutes we're gonna gather downstairs, we're gonna read the Bible together, okay, okay. And you kinda gotta go around. It takes a lot of work. Don't just think you can just ring the bell, bing, and they all come running. No, no, no. You gotta go after them and tactfully talk with them. And apart from my initiation, it, it just plain doesn't happen. But I believe that such gatherings, family worship, makes a huge difference in the life of our family. Um, I, I, I don't know. I can't measure. There's no statistic on it. But in eternity, I, I think that just that time is what makes the biggest impact on the direction of our family and our kids in our life. Because I think the constant gatherings we have set a tone for the rest of our lives. Um, we, we can do it kind of any time. So, like, for instance, we're Friday night, we're traveling to the Reed's house for a flock up there. And um, <laughs> I was a little late getting in the car because I was printing stuff I wanted to read with them on the way. Carissa, 15, she got a permit. She's driving up there, and Dad's in the front seat reading to everybody. And we're talking about it. And um, the things that we read are catalysts for discussion. As I read, there are questions that come up, there are comments that come up, there are examples that people have to share. In these moments, I just stop, and we think about that, and we talk about that, and um, it's good, it's helpful, it's profitable. And, and so going up to the reach, we read for half an hour. Did we exhaust my material I brought, guys? <laughs> no. I brought several books, okay? Kind of just, we'll see where the conversation goes, and I knew we were going to read through them all, but I thought, okay, well, how about we read this? No, okay, well, we'll do this, and kind of that's what we did, but... Um, I love the times together as a family to teach and train my children. That, um, and in the process, think, I'm edified as well. So I read these things and say, wow, that's really good. That's really helpful to me. And I'm calling you men merely to take the initiative to have some kind of spiritual input in the lives of your kids. And I would say this. If you're not gathering your family together for some sort of spiritual education, edification, as short as that is, you're missing God's call in your life. If you're not gathering your family together, you're missing God's call on your life. Say, God, what, what, what's my call? Steve, what's my call in my life? It's to gather your family together, to lead them in spiritual things. And I say that, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. These words I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. God's word should be there. You should be teaching them and leading them 
And I found the easiest way is just to read and promote conversation and talk. But, but beyond family read- worship, there are other ways to provoke spiritual leadership. Uh, Yvonne and I, you know, we read, we read this book together. We're just constantly reading books together. She gets ready for bed. I get ready for bed. I'm in bed. She's getting ready for bed in the bathroom. I'm just reading to her. And um, then we get to bed and we pray before we go to sleep. Just that's a simple thing. Fathers, if you look for books to read, I give you books to read. It's really easy. Ask your wives. Honey, would you like me to read to you? Let your wife say no. At least you've initiated. And, and my wife and I, we aren't, we aren't perfect, so, but we've done that. I've got a plan for my kids. You've got Chris NSR and reading programs. you want to find out more about that, come and talk with me. I can help do the same for your kids. Just I know some of you talk to you. You're doing the same with your kids. I'm really encouraged by that, teaching and training your kids upon things. In fact, I'm even looking to help you men with this. Um, we're hoping tonight to start a new email. You get the weekly word, right? How many get the weekly word? All of you. How many of you look forward to getting the weekly word? Most all of you, I hope. Uh, we're going to start another one Sunday night. I haven't come up with a name with it. We need to come up with some name with it. But it's some, something about um, preparation for Sunday. When I come out with all the words of all the songs we're going to sing on Sunday, uh, give you all the serving schedules. So I'll take that off the weekly word. I'll, I'll put that there kind of any schedules coming up. But that's something where I vision you'd be able to print that out, fathers, and just saying, what are we going to sing? Our family get? We'll sing these words and go over what we're going to sing on Sunday. Um, so we're going to try to do that. Get that Sunday night. It should be just like clockwork coming into you. If you're on the weekly word, you should be able to get that. Just trying to help you prepare your hearts for Sunday, help you with the kids. What the kids are going to learn in children's church, if you have those... That lesson will be on there. You can kind of go over that and say, what should I read? There's something good to read for you with younger kids. So, that, Tina will be doing that email um, coming out. But that's what we're hoping to do. Well, that's one way that you can lead your family is by the, the things you say. The second and more important way is the things you do. You lead by example. Because all the teaching in the world, all your Bible reading in the world... Uh, it will accomplish nothing if it's not backed up by a life that make God's, makes God attractive. You know, too often, children can't hear a word that mom and dad are saying because their lives are speaking and shouting so loudly at them. Say, what are you saying? I can't hear you. Your life is shouting too much back at me. Lead by example. Because your life will preach the gospel to your kids. And either your life preaches the gospel or your life preaches the law. You can turn back to Ephesians. Look, 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 turn back. We're, we're done with Second Timothy. Ephesians chapter 5. Here we're talking about a, a marriage. Um, your marriage preaches the gospel. As wives submit to husbands, they, they show what, what it means for the church to submit to Christ. As husbands sacrificially love their wives, it, it teaches children of how Christ sacrificially loved us. And to the extent, fathers, that you're not sacrificially loving your wife, the gospel is not on display. And wives, to the extent you're not submitting to your husband, the gospel is not on display. And so I just say, how's your marriage? I mean, look here, like, like verse 23. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body, but the church is subject to Christ. So wives ought to be the husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. And so as you love your wives, you'll, you'll model Christ's love for the church. And you'll teach the gospel through marriage. And I just say this, fathers, how you, how's your marriage? Does your marriage make the gospel attractive? Or does your marriage, quite frankly, make the gospel unattractive? When children see your marriage, do they say, I want to have a marriage like that? Yes, there are problems, and yes, Mom and Dad sin, but, but they, they overcome that, and there's a harmony, and there's a love, and there's a happiness. That's what I want. Or they repelled and say, I don't want that. I know several children whose parents are very, very, very faithful attenders, busy at church. They've seen their parents' marriage and have said, I'm never getting married. Not me. It's not for me. What's happened? Well, there's been a lot of church stuff, but very little attracting and, 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 um, and making the gospel sweet. They see an example of their parents, and they say, if marriage means fighting and angry and pain and crying and loneliness like this, I don't want it. And such a marriage isn't commending the gospel to children. Let me read, and I'm going to close with this. I know no better way. This would be the best way to do it. Um, in your chapter here about marriage that preaches the good news. quotes Ephesians 5, and they says this. An audience that's usually overlooked by most Christians in our marriages are children. What is our marriage telling them about Christ and His bride? They see it all. They hear our fights. They absorb our attitudes. They know who or what really sits on the throne of our lives. They watch how we handle resentment. They hear the way we talk to each other. They know what we hear the Sunday. Ser- they know when we hear. They know when we hear the Sunday sermon and apply it. They also know when we ignore it. The message that our marriage preaches either repels or attracts our children. God wants your child to watch your marriage and think, I want a marriage like that and I want the God that produced that marriage. Or, they might think like this, when I think of the beauty of the Gospel, I think of my parents' marriage and I want to be a part of the church that's loved by God the way that my dad loves my father and I want to be a part of a church that finds its joy in submitting to Christ as my mother joyfully submits to my father. Here's Paul's point. Christian marriage preaches the Gospel. It makes it either attractive or ugly. When a husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church, washing her with the word, forgiving her and serving her and tenderly leading her, his marriage says Christ loves the church. You can trust the groom. He is infinitely loving. Serve him and you won't be disappointed. And when a husband humbly loves a menopausal or premenstrual wife, his behavior says Christ loves the church even though she is sinful. His behavior tells his children Christ loves the bride even when she is unattractive. It says that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, even our failings. But when a husband is unfaithful to his wife, verbally belittling her, loves his children more than her, or takes her for granted, his marriage says, Christ's love is not that great. He loves us only when we perform. We can't trust this Savior. You can't meet his expectations. He doesn't keep his promises. Why serve a fickle despot, his deeds say? Many things can separate us from the love of Christ. Wives also preach. When mom joyfully submits to her husband to ask to the Lord, recognizing that he is her head, as Christ is the head of the church, and that she is his body, as Christ is the body of the church. 
and that she is his body as the church is the body of Christ, it makes an attractive statement when she does this for an unworthy husband, not because she trusts him, but because she trusts Christ to care for her. It points her children to Christ. Her behavior says Christ is trustworthy. It says the Son of God is infinitely good. You can trust Him. My Father is very imperfect, but Mom trusts Christ to take care of her. If she can trust Jesus in this way, I can also. But when a child... When a wife tells her children to obey Christ, yet doesn't trust Him enough to take care of her relationship with an imperfect husband, but seeks to control Him, resists His authority, refuses to respect Him, and declines to serve Him, her actions speak loudly. They say that the Son of God cannot be trusted. His promise is to exalt the humble, but I don't believe He will exalt me. He says He will take care of those who submit to lawful authority, but I don't really believe that. If I don't take care of myself, who will? In most cases, her children will internalize what she does not what she says. Hope that makes sense. You can get the book and read it. And I just say, husbands, do your job in seeking to so model Christ's love and, and lead your family, not only by precept, but also by example. Okay? Be str- what, are your, what, what, are your, what are your three points? Fathers, help me here now. Only fathers. Point number one, strong in grace. Point number two, point number three, Lead your family. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray you would help. You are our only hope. You're our only help. I pray. I pray that you'd help. I pray you'd help the the homes that are broken. I pray you'd help the fathers who are selfish. I, I pray that you would create within fathers a a hunger and appetite for You and Your Word and for the glory of Jesus, that they be spiritual fathers, to set the tone for their homes and for the sake of these children here. God, I pray You'd help. For those with spiritually absent fathers, I I pray, Lord, that they might trust You. And I pray, Lord, that You might find find Yourself, You might prove Yourself faithful, that You would save those children of those homes that You would lead them to trust in You, that they would be a Timothy, and that they would be an Augustine, that they would be a John Newton, that they they saw a godly mother despite the example of their father. They saw the pain that the father inflicted and would loathe to do that to any woman. And so, God, these things are in Your hand, and I pray that we as men would rise up, Lord, to um, to be mighty in these ways. Not as the world thinks we're mighty, but as humble men really looking to do Your way. I pray that in all this You teach us to be gracious men, filled with the glories of the Gospel that we press on to our kids, that that would be what we speak about and that's what we, be, we model and live. Oh God, I pray You'd help us. We need help. In Jesus' name, Amen.